Uh, I want to wrap up the, uh, the fossil end of things uh, by telling you this. I think you uh, need to know that even though the, the, the fossil record is an immense embarrassment to the evolutionists, they haven't given up. Uh, it is a, an embarrassment, and they want to try to avoid it. All the while, the, the laity, us, thinking that the fossil record was where evolution was proved, and no decent evolutionist would ever even use it as a, as a proof because it is, uh, it is so chock full of uh, um, gaps and in, uh, in, uh, discrepancies. So um, knowing that the fossil record uh, is pretty much, is today pretty much where it was in 1859. You know, and Darwin was saying, boy, uh, you know, this is my theory and it's going to be proved in the... In the uh, fossil record, and if it's not proved in the fossil record, then it'll never be proved. Well, he, he could be excused for saying that in 1859, but after 135 years of <clears throat> fossil hunting, some pretty aggressive fossil hunting, the fossil record is pretty much the same as it was in 1859. Um, I want to read you a quote um, from Darwin. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Now, guys, everybody's still with me. I mean, you know what the, the, uh, the numerous successive slight modifications, we kind of moved from uh, uh, a chipmunk to a bat through numerous successive slight micro-mutations. Now, that's, that was the theory. But not one shred of evidence of that, of that uh, process has been found in the, and been supported by fossil evidence. In terms of transitions from invertebrates to vertebrates, not a single intermediate has ever been discovered. Not a single intermediate. Now, you know what I mean by intermediates? you got to go from the chipmunk to the bat. You've got some things in here that it's got to kind of, through numerous, successive, slight micro-mutations. you got to go from here to here. you got to go to the simple to the complex, and you've got to have all these mutations, that, I mean, these, um, these changes. You understand that? Not a single one has been supported in the fossil record. Now, we're not the only ones that know that. In fact, we haven't known it as, uh, as long as they've known it, as the evolutionary world has known it. And so, not to, uh, to throw in the towel, they have begun to suggest other reasons why the fossil evidence is so blasted embarrassing. Okay? It's not there. We know it's not there. Oh, well, it must be for this reason why it's not there. And what I want to suggest, what I want to mention to you tonight is uh, three or four ways that they have tried to explain the absence, the non-existence of fossil support and fossil proof. Um, to do that, let me just uh, to give you an idea. One, another problem that the evolutionist has, uh, in addition to the absence of fossils, another problem that he has is that many evolutionists concluded years ago that the process for evolution just took too long. Um, evolution was just too slow, and so it was calculated by evolutionists. Why do I always get that one? 
uh, it was calculated by evolutionists how many uh, years it would take to produce the desired changes. Um, how, many, how many generations would it take if you had a species of a thousand? A, 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 I don't know, pick whatever you want. You know, a bat. You got a thousand of them. And uh, how long would it take to, to make a 1% change in a bat uh, where it went from one in a thousand to all thousand of them having the same 1% change? Well, it was calculated that it would take 1,741,000 generations. Then it was calculated how many 1% advantages are there between a single-cell amoeba and a highly developed, highly skilled human being like myself. Uh, how many 1% changes to get from a single-cell uh, amoeba to a human being? There are 70,000 such 1% changes. Now, folks, are you still with me? In 2 billion years... And man, by the way, is not, uh, even by an evolutionist, thought to be 2 billion years old. He's thought to be about 500 million years. But in 2 billion years, do you know how many of these changes could take place? 1% mutations. Well, 2,000 of them could take place. So we're missing still 68,000 1% advantages resulting in a human being. Do you see the point? So, evolution says this just, we just don't have enough time. Evolution works way too slowly. So, because the evidence is not in the fossils, and because evolution just works too slowly, the evolutionary world has come up with other suggestions. The first one um, posited in 1900 by uh, Dr. Hugo de Vries, um, theorized that radical, dramatic changes could take place over a short period of time through what he called mutations. And of course, a mutation would be a change in the whole genetic structure. So we could have these leaps, and which would not register in the fossil record, because of the existence of mutations. Now, folks, uh, as any scientist will tell you, um, significant mutations in higher species are always harmful. Mutations don't help. They hurt. Do you know what a human mutation is? Uh, would you like some examples of some man-made mutations? Well, let me give you a couple. Um, the atom bomb in Japan produced scores of human mutations. <laughs> but it certainly wasn't helpful for the Jap uh, Japanese race. Um, thalidomide. Do you remember thalidomide? Thalidomide produced numerous human mutations. But you know what they were called? They weren't called mutations. They were called monsters. We're called freaks, sideshows. Um, to produce other mutations, fruit flies were subjected to x-rays. You know what was produced? 
Well, they produced fruit flies with curly wings. It was a nice change, but it didn't help their life expectancy. They produced wingless fruit flies. Uh, if anything sadder than a fruit fly, it's one with no wings. And uh, then they produced a bar-eyed fruit fly, which kept running into the wall. We have produced cows without horns. And ladies and gentlemen, that has made them a lot more domestic. But unfortunately, it has shortened their lifespan. We've made chickens that couldn't fly. They taste good. Man-made uh, mutations, but mutations are always harmful. It's like taking a, a sandblaster to a Swiss watch, hoping that you're going to produce a super watch. Well, folks, it, 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 that, was not to ha that won't happen. It simply messes up all the works. And so do mutations. <clears throat> and so um, that problem became, uh, the, the creationists became aware of that problem, of the mutations being harmful, not helpful. Um, so those problems uh, with gradualism um, led some others to posit another suggestion. We, we've got, we don't have any of a fossil record, and so, okay, maybe we got from here to here via mutations. Well, no, those are always harmful. All right, so what's our next uh, suggestion? Well, later on, there was another suggestion called saltations. Have you ever heard that word? Saltations. Uh, saltations means basically uh, jumps. Um, um, if you really wanted another word, you could call it miracles. It would be creation by large jumps called saltations. Interestingly enough, I, I hope you'll find this interesting. I do. Charles Darwin, or, or um, evolutionists, had a... Um, uh, their guiding motto for generations was this. Natura um, non... Faucet <laughs> saltum. Is that edifying to all you? Do you know what this means? This was the guiding motto of evolutionary evolutionists for decades, and it translated it means nature makes no jumps. But today, because the fossil evidence has been such a source of embarrassment, now we have scratched this idea. And we are now positing that very thing. Jumps, leaps, they're called saltations. Uh, because the, the desire for evidence to explain the fossil embarrassment, ladies and gentlemen, has become desperate. And so, um, these people, or those who have held on to kind of a saltational view, one guy by the name of Robert Goldschmidt, Richard Goldschmidt, who was an American uh, uh, geneticist at University of California at Berkeley, he now has written a book um, uh, promoting his concept of the hopeful monster. Here's an example of a hopeful monster. Uh, did you know, ladies and gentlemen, by the way, that um, evolution says that reptiles came before birds? So... One day, two lizards, uh, uh, my mother lizard, laid an egg, and out of that egg 
became a bird. Or even better yet, two dinosaurs mated and birthed a canary. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a hopeful monster. There is not one shred of evidence that that has happened, but folks, what I'm trying to illustrate is that the desire to explain the faulty fossil evidence has become desperate. So much so that they've suggested mutations, they've suggested saltations, they've suggested hopeful monsters. The most current, which is really a version of that, is one that uh, Stephen Jay Gould has been a part of uh, creating. Did you see Stephen Jay Gould's picture in the paper Sunday? Um, I, he's a Harvard um, paleontologist, I think. He's not but 54. I thought he was older than that. But um, anyway, nice looking fellow. Uh, he has written a book along with uh, Niles Eldridge and Stephen Stanley. And, and I use this word, but this is a good word for all of you uh, in biology in high school. If you can quote this word, Boy, they'll think you'll know something. It's called punctuated equilibrium. Punctuated EQ equilibrium. Now, this is the latest uh, theory. Punctuated equilibrium, which basically says that there are macro mutations, not the small, successive, numerous, small changes moving upward, but now macro mutations, which is the same thing as a saltation. But now, guys, all I'm suggesting to you, all I want you to realize is the fossil record is not an enemy of ours. It is an enemy of the whole evolutionary camp, and they are doing everything they can to try and explain it. And I've listed three, mutations, saltations, hopeful monsters, and punctuated equilibrium. This is called, by the way, in, uh, in a rather... Um, uh, hip kind of way. Punk eek. I like that. Uh, punk eek. Uh, but anyway, um, a very vocal evolutionist, T.H. Morgan, has said in his book, Evolution and Adaptation, he says this, listen. Within the period of human history, we do not know of a single instance of the transformation of one species into another one. It may be claimed that the theory of descent is lacking. Therefore, in the most essential feature that it needs to place the theory on a scientific basis, this must be admitted. Is that what your biology teacher is saying to you? Is that what you heard at Memphis State? You want to hear it again, folks? Here is T.H. Morgan in his book, Evolution and Adaptation, saying, within the period of human history, we do not know of a single instance of the transformation of one species to another. It may be claimed that the theory of descent is lacking, therefore, in the most essential feature that it needs to place the theory on a scientific basis. But you're being taught that it is fact. Not a single instance, ladies and gentlemen, and yet T.H. Huxley said, if the evidence is not there in the fossils, it is nowhere to be found. Well, Mr. Huxley, it is not there. Colin Patterson, who is a uh, senior paleontologist at the British Museum of Natural History, suggested that evolution, and, and, and this is, I, I, I agree, of course, I know they don't care, but he says, the effects of, uh, of the theory of common ancestry that is that tree thing, 
the effects of the theory of common ancestry has not been merely a lack of knowledge, but positively anti-knowledge. Folks, what we are being taught is, um, is on, a course in co on a collision course with knowledge. And the evolutionists are saying that. Why? I, I cannot yet figure out why we have been so willing to let them intimidate us over this. You know, um, one of the things they say about us Christians is that we are, uh, we're not, we, everything that we do is based on faith. It is all based on faith, you know. And, and, but the empiricist is the scientist who's looking for the data. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm suggesting that the most empirical position to be in is the one that we're in as, uh, as Bible-believing Christians. Darwin wrote to a friend of his at the end of his life, or close to the end of his life, wrote a letter to a friend of his by the name of Asa Gray, and he said this in the letter, One's imagination, imagination must fill up the very wide blanks. Well, if you buy into this, ladies and gentlemen, you better have a great imagination because you're going to fill in some blanks, lots of them lots of them and you might have to believe in monsters hopeful monsters and leaps and mutations because that's uh, that's the desperation that evolution uh, is characterized by at, at the present date now i hope that that says enough about fossil evidence the next time somebody says something to you about fossils you are you are free to laugh because anybody who knows anything about it knows that that's an, a source of embarrassment and they're trying to explain it away in any way they can. Now, there's a second issue I want to talk to you about tonight. And uh, this is one that, um, that I think has entrapped its many. Um, I was walking out last Wednesday night, and somebody caught me and said, well, you know, what I've always... No, they didn't say it like that. But they said, um, it, is it not possible for God to have used evolution to create? Have you ever heard that before? Uh, that's called theistic evolution, ladies and gentlemen. Did, did God create by using evolution? Yeah, that's, that's, a nice, that's a nice possibility. And you kind of get your cake and eat it too. You can get to nod your head and very nicely towards God, but also uh, not be embarrassed when, it, when you go to your ninth grade biology class. Uh, it's also called the day-age theory you know what, uh, why they call it the day-age theory? Because the theistic evolutionist is saying uh, this, that in Genesis 1, when it talks about days, it is not talking about a 24-hour period. It is talking about an age, a period of time. For instance, in 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, for the, uh, for, uh, to the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. And so, um, the day-age theorist, or the theistic evolution, is suggesting that the day of Genesis 1 does not refer to a 24-hour period. But what it refers to it is a period of time, an age. That's why they call it a day-age theory. Um, and some have suggested that the day of Genesis 1 should be thought of as at least a billion years. That each day represents a period of a billion years. They even call themselves 
mature creationists. Um, one quote from Dr. Davis Young, no relative of mine, said, God revealed the fact of creation but has left the method to be worked out by scientists. That's theistic evolution, ladies and gentlemen. And some of you came up in church thinking, well, you know, I don't reject either. I believe in creation and I believe in uh, evolution at the same time. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't have both of those. You can choose this day whom thou shalt serve, but you can't have both. And I want to show you why tonight. First of all, guys, you've got to understand that any brand of evolution is in violation of Genesis 1 and 2. Any of it. For instance, um, fruit-bearing trees were created on day 3 according to Genesis 1. Uh, amphibians, according to Genesis 1, were created on day 5. Evolution reverses those two. Now, all I'm saying is, I'm not addressing the day age just yet, all I'm saying is any version of evolution is in contradiction to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So any kind you want, is gonna, you're going to find yourself in open disagreement with what we call the Word of God. Now, but why is it that we are, um, why is it that I don't think you should be a theistic evolutionist? Um, the key word, of course, is day. The, the Hebrew term is yom. I think you've probably heard that before. It is used, uh, oh, um, more than 2,000 times in the Old Testament. And 95% uh, of the time that it is used in the Old Testament, it is clearly referring to a 24-hour period, uh, other times it is used like this, the day of the Lord, like in Joel chapter 2. But the greatest preponderance of the usage of that term encourages us to think of a 24-hour period. For instance, Exodus chapter 20, uh, the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, that's a, that's a usage of that term that is clearly referring to a 24-hour period. But if you've got your Bibles, you might want to look at them tonight when we're looking at, um, uh, just open them up to Genesis 1. <clears throat> In the Genesis 1 account, folks, um, the, numer the term day is found 2,000 times in the Old Testament. But the term day with a numerical qualifier is found about 200 times. A numerical qualifier by this. The first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. When there is a numerical qualifier of the term day, you find that 200 times in the Old Testament. And every time, every time you find the term day with a numerical qualifier, every time in the Old Testament... It is without exception in reference to a 24-hour period of time, a 24-hour day. Um, and if you'll notice in Genesis 1, each of those six days is called the first day or the second day or day three or day four. The, the point being, ladies and gentlemen, every time in the New Testament that a numerical qualifier precedes the term yom for day, 
It refers to a 24-hour period. And what we're being asked to believe is that the only place in the Old Testament that it does not mean 24 hours is in Genesis 1. Folks, do you know what uh, uh, hermeneutics is all about? Hermeneutics is a theory of interpretation of the Scriptures. And the way that you try to understand the nature and the essence and the meaning of words is that you do word studies. That's why I have that huge library that, in my office. You, you, you take a word and you trace it through the Scriptures and you find out how it was used and what it meant and how it was being uh, used in sentences. Well, you can find the term yom used 200 times with a numerical qualifier. And every time, every time, it means a 24-hour period. Except, of course, according to the theistic evolutionist in Genesis 1. Um, if you'll look, notice in Genesis 1 that there is the terms evening and morning. Now, folks, what do you think about when you hear the term evening and morning the first day or evening and morning of such and such a day? That terminology requires a 24-hour period. The word evening used 52 times, and the, the term morning, used 220 times, always refers to a normal day uh, when they are used in the Old Testament or throughout it. The Jewish day began at sunset, or in the evening, and it ended in, in, you know, the next day at sunset. It was morning and evening. It's always referring to a 24-hour period. Um... The words day and night are part of a normal 24-hour day. If you look at Genesis 1-5 and verses 14 through 18, the words day and night are used nine times um, in, in, a, in a way that it could only refer to. Only refer to a 24-hour day. Folks, if, if I were to look at you and say night and day... Would, you, would have to, you would have to impose something on my words to make it mean anything other than a 24-hour time period, to make it be a billion years. Well, folks, the whole context of Genesis 1, using that term night and day. Um, look at uh, uh, verse 14 of Genesis 1. In that verse, God makes a distinction between days and years and seasons. There you find a distinction made between a day, a longer period, and an even longer or another period of time. But it is set in contradistinction over against those other usages of, uh, of making reference to periods of time. But the term day, in that context, you would have to do damage to it to make it mean something other than a 24-hour period. There are two other things I want you to understand and, and, and then we're just about finished. Do you know what symbiosis is? Symbiosis is a biological term describing a mutually beneficial relationship between two types of creatures. Um, for instance, plants that cannot reproduce uh, apart from the habits of uh, certain insects or birds. The, uh, the uh, yucca plant what a name for a plant, the yucca plant. 
The yucca plant, folks, did you realize this, is dependent upon the yucca moth? The yucca plant is dependent on the yucca moth. Um, and, and as you know, most flowers require the pollination of bees or insects for the pollination and reproduction. Now, guys, think about it. Just think about it. In Genesis 1, plants were created on the third day. Okay? Birds on the fifth day. And insects on the sixth day. Now, plants could have survived for 48 to 72 hours without birds and bees. But could they, ladies and gentlemen, have survived two to three billion years without the very thing they were designed to depend upon for their life and reproduction? If a day means a billion years and plants were made day three, and insects were made day five, then this plant over here is waiting for the insect to come along, and it doesn't come along for two billion years. That poor yucca plant will never meet a yucca moth for two billion years. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a, a process in biology widely known. I didn't discover it. Symbiosis. You see bees fluttering around plants and pollen. But if it doesn't mean a 24-hour period, then these, these plants could never have survived. There's one other uh, scientific process that everybody knows about. It's called photosynthesis. Um, folks, uh, plants, uh, as you know, are um, uh, require a 24-hour day. That is, in terms of the photosynthesis process. If each day were a billion years, as theistic evolutionists would have us to believe, then half of that day, 500 million years, would have, had been, would have been dark. Do you get that? I mean, if it's a morning and evening, and we got a billion years for every day, then we got 500 years in darkness and 500 years in, a million years in light. Um, so how then are all these plants... How are they going to survive when the process that is designed to keep them alive is denied them for 500 million years? Clearly, ladies and gentlemen, clearly, Genesis 1 demands a 24-hour day. The term yom as it means in Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day? It means the same thing in Genesis 1. It was evening and morning the first day, the second day. 24-hour periods, folks. You know, guys, I, I know that there is, it would be nice if we could, um, I mean, the question is not whether God could have used evolution to create. Of course he could have. The question is, did he? And, and the, the Genesis 1 will not allow us to think that he did create over a period of time. The Heavenly Father created in six days, ladies and gentlemen. Six days, six 24-hour periods. And then he rested on the seventh 24-hour period called a day. That's theistic evolution, ladies and gentlemen. Some of you are entrapped in it. Some of you bought into that because it allowed you to be 
religious, you thought, and scientific at the same time. I want you to know that is a breach, a serious breach of faith. You cannot have that, ladies and gentlemen. You either are an evolutionist, as I said the opening night, you either are an evolutionist or you are a creationist. No middle ground, folks. I hope that'll be helpful in terms of thinking through what you are. But I, uh, I, I do think that the majority of you love the idea that God created you from dust. Uh, but, guys, um, just believing it yourself is really not enough. Um, while we allow our children to be dragged into a pit, um, I ho I'm telling you, that ought to make you angry. We have a whole little corner back here of junior hires and senior hires, folks. You ask them what they taught them. And part of the reasons they taught them that is because we as adults didn't defend them from it. You know, I, I've told this story before, and I'll, I'll close with this. The, the story about the, uh, the black pastor who, um, who took his, uh, who had a deacon in his church who was, uh, just had a terrible mouth. I mean, he was, he was always cursing and, uh, and saying bad words. And somebody came up to the black pastor and said, now, you, you know, you're going to do something about deacon. He's, he's, uh, he's just got a terrible foul mouth. And so, so the, um, the pastor decided, okay, he's going to do something. So he finally took the guy out fishing. And, um, you know, they were fishing out there and just having the best old time. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, um, uh, the issue came up of his foul mouth and the, pre the pastor kind of directed the, the fact that he was talking bad, you know. And, and about that time, there was this 12-pound fish, <laughs> bass. Um, is that a big one? Uh, a 12-pound bass struck the line of the preacher. And I mean, he's fighting that thing, you know, all over the boat and, and, and finally kind of kept reeling it in, finally got it to the edge of the boat and leaned over with his little net to scoop him in. And at that exact moment, the line broke and the fish swam away. And the preacher looked at the deacon and he said, Deacon, something ought to be said. <laughs> My brother and sister in Christ, something ought to be said. Somebody ought to stand up and say, No more! No more of this. It is a lie. It has been perpetrated on lies and hoax for decades. And we will tolerate it no more. Father, I pray that you will embolden your people. I thank you for the, uh, the high percentage of people who you've led to us here who love your word and love the fact that you created them, that you wove them in the womb, that you knew them even before they were born. Oh God, might we be people who uh, take great delight in realizing that we are not the product of time and chance and methane gas that we are the product of the creative fiat of a sovereign God. 
But Father, if you have led others to us who are here tonight struggling with the issue, I pray that this information would help them see that the real position of knowledge is one that stands squarely and firmly on your word. I pray, O oh God, that um, we might not ever again be guilty of allowing a, an unbelieving, atheistic, godless, uh, scientific community to intimidate us into a corner. Might there be a, um, a determination to speak, to speak in the name of the one who is altogether lovely and the one who knows us when we rise, when we stand up and when we sit down. He knows us from afar. He knows us intimately. We can never free, flee his presence. We are always before his scrutinizing eye. We, uh, we enjoy that prospect, Lord, that you know us and you know us intimately and you knew us before the foundation of the earth. Father, um, thank you for interested people and I pray that uh, this information will help them as they uh, wrestle through uh, their own situations. We commit, us, we commit ourselves to a, a pursuit of holiness, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.